Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading the story of Jesus' nighttime visit from the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3, 1-21. We talk about what it means to be born again from above, giving up one's life as a child of the empire to be reborn into a life of reconciliation with both God and neighbor. We wrestle with the idea that those who love darkness are already condemned, and we wonder what that means for our own denials of past and present injustices that prevent us from receiving the new life promised by God. And we marvel at that most famous claim that in Jesus God moves toward the world not in condemnation, but in reconciling love and we wonder if we might be able to do the same. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I feel very proud of myself because I'm a Bible scholar who has no like practical skills. But today, I, I fixed my toilet. <laughs> so, that is an important practical skill. I'm so pleased with myself. My kid was super excited about it, and so she sat in there and watched and watched me do it, and pretended like and she was you're fishing eating. in the toilet tank. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, I mean not the bowl, like not the part. Yeah, where yeah, you yeah. Poop, no, I got gotcha, you. I got Just gotcha. like the part where I there's gotcha. clean water. Yeah, mm-hmm. I wouldn't let my kid fish in toilet fish poop. In the to- I don't know. I think I feel like you are the parent of two young children. It's true, and I'm. Yes. I don't. I don't know. You're pretty. You're a little germaphobic, but I was gonna say I can imagine when I was a parent of two young children. It might at some point have seen like the lesser evil just to let the child fish in our own toilet. Yeah, yeah. It's possible. I'm mostly of the opinion that generally speaking, germs are positive, but probably shouldn't let your kid play with poop. Uh, Yes, there are are (laughs) boundaries. You know, like, yeah, yeah, I I pretty much let things, I let things be what they are. Well, I don't know how to get there from there to John 3, but. I don't know if there's any experience in the world we could talk about that would get us to John 3. (laughs) Fair enough. Do you want to say, like, so this is, yeah. I'm trying to think, like, creeping around at night. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. But here we are, John 3. Yes. Yeah. So today we're in John 3, 1 to 21. This is the story of Jesus talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And there's quite a, there's a lot going on in this text. Like there are enough things that you could probably do like a season of a podcast just yeah. about this text. Yeah. It kept going. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's in this chapter too. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a lot. And one of the most famous, probably maybe the most famous New Testament passage, John three sixteen, is in this passage where, you know, you see the little people holding up the signs. It's, like yes. It's like the bumper things. sticker passage and the, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's yes. a good one. And so, but it's always nice to read it in context because it takes on, you know, different nuances. Everything does when you put them yeah. in the proper context. For sure. All right. I don't think, I mean, we're just in the next verse from where we were last time. So I'm just going to pick up reading about Nicodemus. Yeah. Great. 
Perfect. Here we go. All right. I'm in John 3. I'm reading the CEB, the Common English Bible. I'm in John 3. I'll just read 1 to 10 right now. Okay. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a Jewish leader. He came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born anew, it's not possible to see God's kingdom. Nicodemus asked, How is it possible for an adult to be born? It's impossible to enter the mother's womb for a second time and be born, isn't it? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you must be born anew. God's Spirit blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. It's the same with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, How are these things possible? Jesus answered, You are a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? I am also a teacher of Israel, (laughs) and I don't know these things. (laughs) My translation is, you don't understand these things? I'm like, Yeah. No. I actually like that (laughs) translation better, I think. I mean, I don't know, just in terms of my own sort of personal preferences. I don't know about that in terms of the Greek, but... Yeah. Like you don't know these things implies a little bit. You should like, have already known. <laughs> yeah. You don't understand these things. It's also not clear whether that is intended to be a statement or a question. You're a teacher mm-hmm. and you don't know, you don't understand these things or you're a teacher mm-hmm. and you don't understand these things. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I mean, it doesn't change a whole lot, but it does. It does change a little bit. Yeah. All right. So here we have Nicodemus who is described as a Pharisee and a Jewish leader coming to Jesus in the dark of night. Any thoughts about just that? Like, here we have a nighttime meetup <laughs> between these. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so first, I'm not going to launch into a whole thing about the Pharisees, but I just want to underscore here, I guess, that the the Jews were not and are not now a monolith, right? Yes. And so mm-hmm. this was like, you, we hear a lot about the Pharisees in the in the Gospels, but that's I think that's that's the piece that I want to take away from identifying him specifically as a Pharisee. Yeah. Coming by night. I mean, I guess, okay, so what just happened before this was Jesus made a real big scene. Yeah. At the temple. <laughs> a real big scene. Mm-hmm. Real big. And so I guess I'm wondering, like, picturing myself as a leader, like, if you're a leader – People look at what you do as cues for what they should do. And so it can be hard to figure out what you think about things without inviting a whole group of people to follow you. Yeah. You know? And so I guess I read going to see Jesus at night as a way to say, like, I need more information about this, but I need a little space to... Think about it just as a human, not as a leader. Yeah. That's how I read the nighttime visit. I love that. So Nicodemus, and he, I mean, he is, he's, he's, he's curious and he wants to know, he's interested enough to want to know more. Yeah. He is not so interested that he's ready to be publicly out there with this Jesus thing in positively or negatively. He just doesn't know, I think. Yeah. I, I like, I like that a lot. Yeah. Your point about the Pharisees is also really important, and I was kind of skipping over that. But, you know, Josephus tells us about three main groups of, of Jews in the first century, the Pharisees who we see here, the Sadducees, 
and the Essenes, who we don't really read about, interestingly, in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's worth saying probably that the Sadducees are generally the the ones most associated with the temple. Yeah. Pharisees are more associated with sort of populist religion or something like that out among mm-hmm. the people. Mm-hmm. They're the ones with the oral Torah. Mm-hmm. The Pharisees come into a really hard time in the New Testament. Like they are often seen as the primary opponents of Jesus, which leads some of us to think, you know, Jesus and the Pharisees are actually not that far apart in some ways. Mm-hmm. We were talking about last time how the Pharisees sort of have the oral Torah as a way of reading the Torah. Christians, Jesus has Jesus as the key for reading the Torah. Yeah. They're kind of similar in what they do. They just, but their keys are radically different. And so yeah. trying to differentiate these two seems important. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, as you said, the Sadducees are mostly concerned with what's happening in the temple. And the Pharisees are more concerned, I would say, broadly about sort of what what you're doing in your daily life. Like what yeah. is, you know, and so that does get into some nitty gritty of yeah. people's daily lives that I think to to readers who are unfamiliar with that tradition feels a little overwhelming. But but the general the general idea that like Jewish practice should or this budding Jewish practice should should live in your daily life and not just in the ritual world of the temple, I think you're right, is yeah. shared by the Pharisees exactly. and and you know, the budding Christian community that religion is in your daily life. Yeah. Now, when Nicodemus comes, like this opening question that he asks is really interesting. He calls Jesus rabbi. Mm -hmm. He says, we know that you're a teacher who comes from God because you couldn't do this without God. So this is, you know, Mm -hmm. you, one might expect a pretty negative approach from Nicodemus, given what you were talking about Mm -hmm. has happened in the temple and just in the previous story. But instead, you get this kind of, I don't know, there's an, there seems to me anyway to be some sort of openness from Nicodemus. How do you read that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's right. There, he starts with this recognition that, like, you are, you are set apart. <laughs> yeah. You know, you are clearly set apart. I'm curious about the way that he talks about it. He doesn't say, you know, you're a prophet. Yeah. He says... You are a teacher who has come from God. Yeah. Are you aware of any parallel to like any other kind of figure who's been talked about that way? Or or do you think this is like a sort of intentionally vague, we know that you're sent by God, we know that you're a teacher, and we have a lot of questions? I tend to read it that the second way. Yeah. The description of him as rabbi and the, you know, talking about him as a teacher are closely related, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that who has come from God can go in all kinds of directions, right? The sort of most mundane reading of it is, you know, like you're one of the teachers that God has sent to the people. And we we can imagine a whole bunch of others. It's sort of like, someone being called into, you know, being a clergy leader or something. Mm-hmm. Like God calls people to do these things. God sends people. John has also described Jesus as being sent from God in the sense that he is God who has been sent into the world. Mm-hmm. And so that you've been sent from God can function in that whole spectrum. And so exactly what Nicodemus means by it, how, how, what, what do you think Nicodemus means? Uh, I don't think he means what John means. Yeah. 
I think he means you you have a special status. Like I think of you are sent from God in in a manner similar to the way we talk about prophets being sent from God. Yeah. Like that that you have some kind of genuine connection and mission. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe there's something more to it than, you know, this is the way God sends all kinds of people, but it's not also not singular, right? So that's, that's Jesus is sent in a way that others have also been sent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but not too many others. But not just everybody. Yeah, you're special, yeah. but you're not uniquely special. I think that's probably right. I think that's probably right. And I also think that John is doing an, sort of an interesting thing here where he's actually got Nicodemus confessing what John's central thesis about Jesus, but Nicodemus doesn't mean it. And he doesn't know what he's saying. Yeah. He does not. Mm -hmm. He has said it without knowing what he's saying. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. We're functioning on two planes. Like we've been talking about John doing. I think that's right. Now Jesus responds Mm -hmm. kind of obscurely. Mm -hmm. And what he says is, I assure you, unless someone is born and then how you translate this, Next word yeah. is a yeah, little the, confusing. The NRSV has born from above. Yeah. But with a note that it could be born anew. Yeah, the Greek there is anothen, which means both of those things. It means it can mean anew or again. It can mean from above. And so there's no English word that really fit, mm-hmm. like that does both of those things at the same time. Yep. So you have to make a translational decision of some sort. But Jesus is not choosing between those two meanings, I think. Jesus right. is trying to say both of those things at the same time. Right. As often is the case, as we keep saying over and over again in, in John's gospel, one has a sort of spiritual sense and one has more of a material sense. Nicodemus then responds very much to the literal kind of like, being born again, like, how can I go back into my mother's womb and be born again? Like, that seems crazy to me. Yeah. What do you make of Nicodemus's response here? Okay, so my first take was that it was, I don't know, sort of humorous and and felt like a caricature. Like, what a ridiculous response. Like, oh, I'm going to climb back back into my mother's (laughs) belly? Like, is that what you mean, Jesus? Like, really, Nicodemus? Yeah. So- uh, okay, so I was trying to think of this in terms of like Jewish scripture, Jewish text, you know, how can we understand this? And so my first thought was like, come on, this is a tradition that has ideas like circumcision of the heart. Like, yeah. we we know, Jews know yeah. <laughs> that you can yeah. speak, you know, not so literally. So, yeah. so in a way, it doesn't sound like authentic to my understanding of of Jewish thinking, on the other hand, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Pharisees in particular were concerned about how, really the specifics of how how Judaism and Jewish worship should live in your everyday lives. And I will admit that there are Jewish texts that come out of the oral Torah, out of the, you know, Pharisee tradition, I guess, that are really concerned with like, is there something concrete I am supposed to do yeah. to make sure that I am doing it? Yeah. And some of those texts read to me still now is a little bit comical because they're so like, wait, but what exactly am I supposed to do? So I don't know, but it's a little hard for me to believe that that Nicodemus would have thought this was literal law 
that yeah. <laughs> like that it depends how he understands what Jesus is saying. If he understands it as an idea, then this is a crazy response. If yeah. he understands that Jesus is delivering law, like oral Torah kinds of teaching, then it's not a ridiculous response, but that seems like a strange I think I think the text is making fun of Nicodemus. <laughs> yeah. I I just I can't imagine that someone in that situation would say like, oh, I think you're giving me instructions and I need to make sure that I do them properly. Yeah. No, I think that's a really nice reading. And, you know, one of the, one of, one of our Bible Worm collaborative members is really interested in this idea that John seems to make fun of literalists, which mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of taken by that idea. I, and I need to think about it some more, but so Nicodemus is being made fun of. And he's, mm-hmm. But he's being made fun of because he takes what Jesus says. Because he's says being a literalist, yeah. Only in the literal sense. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is clearly like the literal sense is ridiculous. So, so what are you even doing? Right. Which is kind of interesting when you think about, you know, like in the Christian world, like being a biblical literalist is sometimes worn as like a badge of honor. You know, mm-hmm. like I take the Bible literally. And here Jesus is saying, come on, man. <laughs> like right. if you take the Bible literally, like look where you end up. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not always true, but it, but it certainly is true here. I also think Nicodemus kind of does us a service as a reader because he asks the question that I think probably occurs to most of us, which is like, what on earth were you even talking about like, there, what Jesus? What do you mean? Right. What are you talking about? Yeah. So like maybe a more nuanced response from Nicodemus would be like, uh, what does that mean, Jesus? But, <laughs> <laughs> but saying yeah. it this way, you know, he sort of is the interlocutor who says the ridiculous thing that everybody's like, oh, thank God somebody asked that because I, I was about to say the same thing. You know, so Nicodemus does us a service as readers because he gets the the ridiculous thing that we might have been thinking out on the table so Jesus can call Nicodemus ridiculous instead of calling us. And calling, yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Sometimes a simple-minded question is just, just what we need. Yeah. So I t- intentionally have not asked you what you think Jesus means by, unless someone is born anew, because Jesus then clarifies what he means clarifies is a little optimistic maybe (laughs) (laughs) he says more yeah in in response to nicodemus and he introduces this idea of being born of water and the spirit and then he goes on to say whatever is flesh is flesh whatever is spirit is spirit you must and then he says it again you must be born anew or again so jesus has given us this you must be born again anew from above twice and in the middle, he's given us this idea of water and spirit mm-hmm. and then flesh and spirit. Do you, does Jesus's sort of second, his follow-up help you, give you more interesting questions? Where do you, where do you go with Jesus's follow-up here? My, well, first, I feel like, again, I should confess that I, it, were it not for the notes in my study Bible, I didn't even get water and spirit was talking about baptism. I was like, yeah. water, wa- I don't know, maybe I'm like Nicodemus. I was like, water, <laughs> yeah. like water births? No. I think, I mean, I think it does clarify. It does help me in some ways. And I wanted to ask you, sort of following up on a conversation from weeks ago where you you kind of took me to school on this, on seeing bifurcation of body and spirit yeah. in the text. How how does the school of Bobby read this then? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're taking me back to school. 
<laughs> Let's meet at the schoolhouse, Bobby. What's happening? Yeah. Get on the yellow bus and here we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I'll, let me say a couple of things. I like that when you, whenever you put me on the spot, I like try to weasel my way around. Like, no, that's okay. Yeah. Weaseling is allowed. The water and spirit thing I think is interesting and that your study Bible goes to baptism, I think is probably entirely reasonable. Um, and we've seen this thing back in chapter one about John says, I baptize with water, but the one who comes after me baptized with the spirit or, or, mm-hmm. or however that, mm-hmm. I forget exactly yeah, how yeah. that goes. So there is this sense that one, maybe one needs both of these things. One of the commentaries I was reading, I think it's Marianne Mai Thompson's commentary in the New Testament library, was connecting this passage to Ezekiel 36, which I think is so fascinating. If you remember that passage, right, Ezekiel's prophesying, this is the good news-ish section of Ezekiel, where mm-hmm. the people are in exile and God is sort of working out the plan for how are we going to like get to something else besides exile. And God says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. I will put my spirit within you. They will be my people. I will be your God. This is in that whole section that's about, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. And so what she says is, look, what Jesus is saying here is just what Ezekiel said back in Ezekiel 36, Mm -hmm. which is you're like the way that we move forward is that the gifting by God of a cleansing water and a renewed spirit. And Jesus is simply saying, here we are. This is what Ezekiel was talking about. Now is the time. I th- I would re- I'm pretty compelled by that, but it's just kind of off, you know, like, I don't know how deeply I've <laughs> necessarily thought about it. I'm curious where you go if, with that idea. I'm trying to sort of, I'm really intrigued and I'm trying to play it out in my head because I feel like I haven't quite wrapped my mind around it. So if we think of being born of water and spirit as sort of this is an act initiated by God. Yep. And it's just saying like, this is happening now. Yep. Then I guess the, I guess the main difference then, I'm trying to like, what are the important differences between thinking of this in terms of Ezekiel and thinking of it in terms of baptism? That baptism is a choice that the person makes as opposed to something initiated by God and offered to the whole community? To me, that's a great question. And I don't know that the I don't know that one needs to choose between I always say stuff like this. I don't know that one needs to choose between the Ezekiel 36 and the baptism reading. Like maybe mm-hmm. they work mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. But to me, the baptism reading has a little bit of a narrowness to it. It's sort of a, uh, you need to undergo this ritual experience in the Christian community in order, like either you're baptized or you're not. Mm -hmm. And connecting it to Ezekiel says, this is something that God has been unfolding for the last 600 Mm -hmm. years Mm -hmm. in the context of exile that you know is coming. It's not a new thing. It's not a new initiation into a new thing. And so it's not that this is coming out of left field. It's just that this is the inauguration of something. Yeah. And then that issue of like, who's invited, who is it offered to, and what do you have right. to do to receive it? Yeah. I think is interesting. And we're going to get more into that. We're going to get more into that later. No, I really like that. I like that. The idea that like, this is not like things took a hard left and now you have to do this. 
<laughs> yeah. you know, other thing, but instead this is, we have arrived at a moment that has been spoken about. Like if, if, you know, if one were to think of as like, of, think of this as a messianic age or a messianic moment, like this is the, the moment that was spoken about in Ezekiel. I, I like that. I think it's interesting and worth thinking about, mm-hmm. and it helps me when you take me back to school about flesh and spirit, because what I want to do is transpose the idea of flesh and spirit. Actually, I don't think I'm transposing them. I think I'm reading them the way they were intended, but mm. and that they have later claim been, it, Bobby, claim <laughs> it. been transposed is that flesh and spirit is not about a material bifurcation between the human body and the human spirit. It's a differentiation between the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit. That is the, the things of the world and the things of God. And so even back in that Ezekiel text, there's this sense of when you follow human inclinations, look where you end up. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a godly spirit and look what we can do together. Like I want to read it that way, which is to say mm-hmm. uh, you have a choice of whether you're going to follow the, the ways that the world functions. You know, you could get fairly short step from there to the ways of the empire, although mm-hmm. they're not exactly the same. Or you can follow this, the God spirit. So there's the flesh spirit and the God spirit. <laughs> That's kind of how I want to read it. So it's not about what what does your body do versus what does your spirit do, but about mm-hmm. what way of life are you committed yourself to? What's, what spirits do you allow to animate you? Okay. I mean, I think that's helpful. And I think... You know, it's making me think about some of our conversations where something is off, where there's a metaphor and we always say, okay, let's first read it not as a metaphor mm-hmm. and then we'll read it as a metaphor. Yeah. So yeah, you can, you can think about the literal body, but then you could think about what the, what that implies. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think if you try to read John as anti-flesh, you get kind of caught in this problem that like the whole motivating image of the gospel of John is that Jesus is the word become flesh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if, if the flesh is so terrible, then that would not be what you would do. Like this is how you end up with sort of, you know, Gnosticism and various forms of docetism where Jesus was a spirit in a human suit, but was mm-hmm. not actually enfleshed. So I think in one way or another, we have to find an interpretation that is not simply saying bodies or materiality is is bad. Jesus then introduces this idea of the spirit and the wind. God's spirit goes wherever it wants. You can hear it, but you don't know where it's coming from. It's the same. What what do you think is happening there? (laughs) I was like, (laughs) what is even happening? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So here are the options I see. Yeah. Maybe there is an inscrutability about the spirit, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, it it may or may not have a path, but we don't know what it's going to be. Maybe the spirit can't be controlled. Maybe you know it's present because you encounter some effect of it, like it's sound, but you can't trace it or pin it down in any concrete way. Like you just sort of see the aura of it. That's all I got. Yeah, the wording of it is very awkward. Uh, it's the same with everyone who is born of the spirit. They are like the wind. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> which would actually be kind of cool. I feel like that would be some like really awesome superhero. Maybe there is one where you're like, 
I'm the wind. <laughs> you just be like, I blow Wah. where I choose. I yeah. If you can, you never know where I'm going to be next. I wish you could see <laughs> my little, my little wind superhero motions on the they're, podcast. They're significant. significant motion happening <laughs> yeah. here. I'm the wind. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I'm with you that what, what's being said here is that the spirit is inscrutable and kind of every place and you can, you can see its effects. But you can't really like we don't know we don't know where it's coming from, where it's going to go next. But we can tell that it's there. That's kind of the way that I read it. And so then you end up someplace like you don't quite know where the spirit, who the spirit is going to go motivate in this new way. But you can tell when the spirit does that. Mm. And now we're moving. Now I, I should say I'm a Presbyterian, and I so I come from a Reformed tradition, which very much believes that the relationship between God and human beings is God initiated by the spirit and not human initiated, like, which we're going to get into some problems with my, <laughs> with my tradition mm-hmm. here in just a minute, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that the choices that we make are not really our free choices that, you know, the spirit is what enables us even to choose to follow God. And so this idea of the spirit goes where it will is very comfortable in my tradition. Because it just means like you never know who's gonna get who's gonna get called, mm-hmm. or what the rationale is, but you can tell when it happens. I say that just to say, when I read John and that's where I come out, you should be at least a little bit suspicious <laughs> that I'm reading John through my tradition rather than reading my tradition through John. But to me, it make, to me it makes sense of the text. Yeah. Hmm. That little verse also reminds me of Ecclesiastes 11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Ecclesiastes says, um, you do not know how the breath comes into the bones in the mother's womb, so you do not know the work of God. Yes. You, you, you saw that connection too. Did you want to say anything about that? I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't see it so, so pointedly to like a particular chapter of Ecclesiastes, but I was thinking a lot about mm. the, just that sort of overarching notion of God not being sort of predictable or knowable yeah. in the way that we expect. Yeah. And also just some of the wind imagery that sure, like, you know, yeah. it's there because you see effects of it, but you can't hold on to it. Like you yeah. can't, it, yeah, mm-hmm. you can't put it in a box. I love that. And if you do read it a little more narrowly, like I was doing with Ecclesiastes eleven five, then you end up mm-hmm. with this idea. Like we're talking about birth and that passage there in Ecclesiastes mm-hmm. is also talking yeah, about birth. Yeah, really nice. mm-hmm. it's really nice. That's really nice. So you don't know how it works, but you can tell that it, so you can tell something has happened. Well, you, yeah. you might ne- necessarily know what. So sweet Nicodemus, I mean, he asked a question that seems entirely reasonable to me how are these things possible? To which Jesus responds, you are a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. What, what do you make of Jesus and Nicodemus interaction there? Like, I don't even know. I feel kind of bad for Nicodemus. Yeah. I mean, so one sort of related observation, I guess, is that back in uh, verse seven, which says, do not be astonished that I've said to you, you must be born from above. That's y'all must be born from yeah. above. It's a plural you. And yeah. to me, 
that stands out in the sense of, you know, like we talked about Nicodemus, like coming at night, he is a leader of the Jews, but maybe yeah. he wants to just show up as like a human person. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and and Jesus is holding his feet to the fire a little bit on this. Like yeah. you can't just show up as yourself. Like you have a greater responsibility. Yeah. Like you you represent a people. I love Even that. if you come at night, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so I feel like some of that may in my imagining some of that spaciousness or like intellectual spaciousness that mm. Nicodemus wanted by coming at night, Jesus is not not giving it to him. You know, like yeah. you you're gonna have to figure it out. Like you have a greater responsibility here, which is I don't know, that's a lot of pressure, but I think he's being held to a higher bar. I love that, Amy. And, you know, when Nicodemus first spoke back in verse two, he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. So even Nicodemus himself seems to have understood that he represented more than just himself. That's true. And Jesus, when he says, y'all must be born from above, is coming back, I think, to that. Yeah. Yep. That's true. So they both recognize that there are these connections. But Nicodemus, I I love what you're saying. Nicodemus is trying to play that. I don't know. He's not quite ready to be part of the communal yet. Yeah. I also read Jesus' response there in verse 10 as saying, this is not something new. Like it Mm. all sounds really new, but it's not new. Mm -hmm. So if you really were a teacher of Israel, who you would understand what's happening here. Like you have access to all the data. You just got to put it together. Mm -hmm. Which in in my head comes back to that Ezekiel reading and, and other gestures toward the Hebrew scriptures that we've talked about. Yes. No, I, that's really helpful because that that is at least a, one answer, maybe the better answer to the question. Like, is it that Nicodemus should have understood this from from this encounter with Jesus? Or as you're saying, like, this is this is not totally new information. You know, yeah. <laughs> you, sh- you should have been able to pull this, pull most of this together, at least. Yeah. I think that's what Jesus is saying is you. Yeah, you should have. You shouldn't have even really needed to ask me this question in the first place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so these obscure responses that Jesus has given are not, they're obscure with a purpose a little bit to say, like, can you, can you get there? Can you get there? Nope, you can't. can't No, you cannot. Nope, (laughs) I'm not there. Okay, so picking up then in verse 11. I assure you that we speak about what we know and testify about what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the human one. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. I think my first question, other than who is the we, but is there a difference between not receiving our testimony and not understanding it? Mm. Like, and part of that goes into, you know, where we just came from, where Jesus has said something and Nicodemus doesn't get it, doesn't understand. Yeah. Is that, do you think those are the same things? not receiving testimony and not understanding testimony. Yeah, we've I mean we've had this sort of even even all the way back in the prologue, we've had this issue of comprehension 
you know, we rem- remember we talked about the darkness did not overcome it or the darkness did not comprehend it. Yeah. And so there's this sort of interesting issue in the Gospel of John, which is a lack of understanding, which can be viewed as an act of hostility, even. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think there's a connection there. We're, we're, we're trying to make you understand, and you just don't, you just don't get it. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I'm just feeling very aware of myself sort of as a modern person and how much I assume that if you if you want to understand something, that's the important thing that you that you want to or that you're willing to. But I feel like this is I mean, maybe it still gets to that issue, but it's sort of on a deeper level, more subconscious level that your capacity to understand is not just in a willingness to ask a question. Yeah. You know, like Nicodemus does ask a question. He's curious, but there's something missing in his curiosity that he's not able to receive the testimony that's given. Yeah. I think that's right. And, you know, we saw in the previous passage last time uh, that people who believe in Jesus because they have seen signs, Jesus doesn't really seem to trust them very much. And mm-hmm. so here we have Nicodemus at the beginning of this text saying, no one can do these signs unless God is with them. So Nicodemus is drawn in by the signs, but he's lacking a deeper understanding. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's right. And I mean, Nicodemus has basically said what is true, right? You're a teacher sent from God. Mm-hmm. He just has meant something different by it. And so he's not able to take it on board fully in the, in the sense that that Jesus means it. I also think from this first verse, you know, we mentioned like, did, did, did we miss part of the story? Like, has John not narrated some things? It really seems in this verse like there have been events that are not narrated. Yeah. Because there's a you, there's a plural you, y'all do not receive our testimony. We speak about what we know and testify to what we have seen. And I feel like we haven't yet seen that play out, really. Um, the other way of reading, or another way of reading, is uh, where he says, we speak about what we know and testify about what we've seen. One can read that along the lines of, you can only say what you, you, can only say what you know. Yeah. Which then would be a, actually a comment on Nicodemus, right? You, you can only say what you've experienced. And so, mm-hmm. mm. but you don't know what you're talking about, but- you can only say what you've experienced because you haven't really experienced it. I like that yet. a lot. So it's not like we, the budding Christian community, versus you, the Jewish community. It's that we humans yeah. yes. can only speak of what we know, right. testify to what we have seen. Yeah. And so humans must be willing to take other humans' testimony like seriously and take it to heart and if yeah. we want to have any chance of understanding beyond the very narrow experiences that we'll personally encounter. I love that, Amy. And I do think there's something going on in the story about, you know, Nicodemus is drawn in an interesting way based on what he has seen, but there's more to the picture that's keeping him from being drawn further in. Yeah. And so he's going to have to trust something other than his own eyes. Yeah. Okay, so Amy, this thing about the snakes in the wilderness, so confusing to me. We're 
We're making a reference to this obscure little passage in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 6 to 9, where the people have been speaking badly about God and Moses, as, as they do in the book of Numbers. And so then we get this little story. The Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit the people, and many people died. So there's a plague from God killing people in the form of snakes. The people said, we sinned, we did this terrible thing, make it go away. And so God tells Moses, make a poisonous snake and place it on a pole. Whoever is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, placed it on a pole. If a snake bit someone, that person could look at the bronze snake and live. So this is the Hebrew Bible story is Moses holding up <laughs> a like cast bronze serpent. And if you get bit by one of these cursed serpents, then you look at the one on the pole and the venom doesn't affect you, apparently. That's a weird story that Jesus is drawing here to talk about Jesus. Can you help us navigate any of that? So the text then says, so must the son of man or the human be lifted up. Yeah. So the connection, I guess, is that whoever looks at Jesus, I mean, yeah. not literally, I'm just playing out the connection here. Right. Is somehow immune to, <laughs> this can't be right, immune to the poison that came from things like Jesus. Yeah. I don't know if that part is not implied, but that, that seems important to me that by like, you are, you are harmed by a serpent and you are saved by looking at a serpent. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're grappling with is exactly the right thing. Like, so the, all the parallels are kind of clear once you dig through it that way. You're getting killed by serpents, so you're going to fashion a serpent. And when you look at the fashioned serpent, you're protected from the real serpents. So then you transpose that over. Yeah. You're being killed by something. So mm -hmm. you put Jesus on a cross and lift him up. And then those who look on Jesus lifted up will be protected from that something. And then the question is, what is the something, right? Like, what is it that's killing us that Jesus protects us from being killed by? But in the other, in the, in the number story, it's the serpent, it's like it's a one-to-one, -one, like serpent, serpent. Right. So then that's, so then do you think that the, the thing that is dangerous, the thing that is killing them has to be related to the thing that saves them? Like, is that I do. Core part yeah, of yeah. this? Mm -hmm. So yeah. then where does that go? Yeah, I, I think it could go in some different directions. I mean, like the obvious the obvious answer is sin, right? It's sin. Yeah. It's sin. So when they're looking at Jesus on the cross, it's not that they're looking at Jesus as the divine human that he is, but they're looking at the sin of humanity that put him on the cross. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's, the right answer, or at least a start toward a right answer, is to say the sin that results in Jesus being lifted up on the cross is this thing that's killing you. So if you gaze upon Jesus, who has been crucified, it's not just gaze on Jesus, right? It's gaze on the crucified right. Jesus. Right. I think that's the key thing. It's not just gaze upon Jesus. It's like gazing at the, the whole situation. And so then I think you, then I think the move that you're making, which is really nice, is to say, 
the fact that Jesus, this, you know, in John's telling, the Son of God is crucified by people is evidence of human sinfulness. Mm-hmm. And so when you look upon that, that protects you from the human sinfulness that wishes to kill you as well. A step sort of past that to say, it's not about my individual human sin, but it's about, you know, that the cross is an instrument of execution of the Roman state. And so it is the the violence of the state, which is connected to sin, right? It's it's systemic, imperialized sin, which wields death as its ultimate weapon. That's what's killing you. So if you gaze upon this Jesus who has been crucified by the sinfulness of the imperial power, it protects you from the the weapons of that imperial power, the weapons of sin, which is death. So because you look at that death, you are now protected from from death itself. That's kind of where I go in, in my sort of post-colonial reading. I think there are probably other ways you could you could work it out. Whoa. That's my response. <laughs> and I can't tell what that woe means. No, I mean, it just, I just have to think so fast to keep up with this. I think the salient point is looking at Jesus crucified raises to consciousness human sinfulness and protects us from mm-hmm. the consequences of human sin, which is ultimately, which is death. And so exactly mm-hmm. how you want to play that out, I think, is a little bit open. Yeah. For me, myself, connecting it to structural sin and imperial power and the wielding of death as the ultimate weapon. Now you say, well, if Christ is resurrected, then the death no longer has any power. And then you're off in a whole other world. Now, the other thing that was probably worth saying is that this lifted up that John uses, he, he, can, he uses it literally to talk about Jesus being lifted onto a cross. He also uses it spiritually to talk about Jesus being glorified and maybe being resurrected as well. And so you've got this sort of two plane thing, like it's Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection, his glorification, which is paralleled to the to the lifting up of the snake. That feels so different to me to be looking at looking up at the glorification or the resurrection as opposed to looking at the sin that is represented in the crucifixion. Yeah. That just, I don't, I think, I don't know if I can wrap my head around both of those, John. Yeah, John is, well, I mean, John is doing some really complicated things here and, and, and some sort of like, the connections are pretty vague. And then he's also saying like, why don't you get this, right? Like, I'm going to explain this, this obscure point by referring to this obscure passage from Numbers. And now do you get it? <laughs> yeah. And so I think that there is some grappling with the mystery here that is, that is intended. That's happening, yeah. Okay, we should move on, I think, to this last section of our text. The most famous line. The most of famous all lines. line. Yes. Yes. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged. Whoever doesn't believe in him is already judged because they don't believe in the name of God's only son. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world and people love darkness more than the light for their actions are evil. All who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. 
Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God. And when you just read John 3.16, it's really a beautiful idea. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that so whoever believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. Let's just, let's just pause with that verse for, for a moment, keeping in mind that there's more to come. But mm-hmm. thoughts about that verse in itself? Okay, this is my thought, which is definitely super very much heresy. But here we go. <laughs> okay, I love Amy heresies. Going back to what we just read, like yeah. this idea that by looking upon, okay, I guess I'm still sort of on like the earthly realm of yeah. like looking upon this crucified person and understanding our sinful nature, our, our communal sin. Why does it have to be God's son? Like, couldn't we look at anyone and understand that? I feel, I mean, something, something, something else is happening. Like, why couldn't God resurrect some other guy? Like, what, what is the importance of it being God's son in this model? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. And there is, there's a lot, a lot one can unpack in there. But I think it's exactly... I don't know if it's the right question, but it's certainly a right question. You know, my head goes in two places. One is that the problem with the crucifixion, there's lots of problems with the crucifixion, but (laughs) Luke especially emphasizes this point of Jesus's innocence. But I think John's emphasis on the son of Godness gets you in the same place. People are very capable of rationalizing that someone deserved to be executed. We do it all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't quite know, you know, how we parse that out, but there's always a little bit of a response like, well, maybe they deserve what they got. When the person is God or God's son, that gets taken off the table, right? This is, Mm -hmm. you know, God's self and we, we killed him. So I think that opens that up a little bit. Like you can't weasel around. Now you have to stare straight at the crucifixion and say, oh my God, human beings do terrible things. The other thing that I think is relevant is, and I mean, I don't know how you parse this out, but the, so the giving God gave his son here seems to imply that idea of God gave him over to crucifixion and resurrection. Mm -hmm. Elsewhere, John says God sent his son, which has a very different feel to it. But when we've just read the thing about the snakes and now we're saying God gave his son and it is coupled with the verb love. God loved the world, so he gave his son. And so there seems to be some kind of connection being made here about God now has skin in the game, right? God is invested in this very direct way. And so it makes some sort of a connection, which is a connection in love that is the self-giving love of God. Now that raises as many problems as it sort of solves, but it kind of gets us into into some interesting territory. Yeah. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking of, I was thinking of sort of the, the bookend quality of that with Abraham's willingness to give his son because of, it doesn't use the word, his love of God, but you know, his commitment to that relationship. Yeah. And this is like a, I don't know. I could see some parallel other than the fact that he doesn't actually do it. You know, that, yeah. that God calls it off at the last minute. Yeah. 
So if you make that connection, which I really like, then you've got Abraham is so committed to God that Abraham is willing to do this thing. God permits Abraham not to do it. Mm-hmm. When you flip it, then God is so committed to human beings that God is willing to do this thing. Human beings follow through with it. Yeah, that's right. And yet God is still so committed to us, even though, you know, we read last time, Jesus knew that people weren't to be trusted. Like God knows what we're going to do. Yeah. Mm. This importance of love here. I mean, and I mean, I don't even know what we're going to do with the rest of this passage in this light, but so often in my experience, Jesus is invoked as a threat by many Christians to say, if you don't, then. And, you know, we get into a lot of judgment language in this passage, too, by way of saying (laughs) God doesn't judge. But I want to get into that in just a second. But, like, the fact that this whole thing is an act of God's love seems crucially important. It's not that God is enraged and is coming and, you know, Mm -hmm. anger. Mm -hmm. It's that this whole thing is motivated out of God's love. Right. If you right. just and leave it, it there, do you what do you what do you do with that? Oh, it's so funny. So if you just leave it there, because I was like, the, and the next part really underscores that message, <laughs> yeah. you know, yet yet further. I mean, it's again, it feels like sort of a, <laughs> I don't know, tragic love. A tragic maybe isn't quite the right word, but this, you know, to to fully see the world for all of its disaster. <laughs> Yeah. And and still love it and be willing to do this most horrible thing. I feel like I'm using such negative words and I don't know how that lands on the ears yeah. of Christian listeners. I don't know. And so I just want to acknowledge that, but it's but that's how it that's how it lands for me. I don't know, just to yeah, to to be aware that like this is this is the only way this really drastic measure is the only way yeah. to try to set things right and be willing to do that most drastic thing. Yeah. Amy, I think it's really useful for you to to talk about it in that way because I think for, sometimes for, for Christians, for many of us, myself included, the crucifixion just becomes like, an, oh yeah, yeah, like that's part of the story. And to sort of step back and say, this, it's a really horrible story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've sort of, smoothed it out a little bit or something. We talk about that sometimes at Easter, but it's true, I think, kind of all of the time. And so to to deal with the fact that this is the way God's love is received, like it's a horrible thing that has has been done here. I, I think that's in it. I think that's crucially important. And I think important to the point you were just making that it is precisely our willingness to behold that emblem of sinful human nature. <laughs> being held up to us. Yeah. That that's that's the key in some way. That's part of the key. Yeah. Yeah. Then after that statement of love, we get another statement that God wasn't trying to judge the world. God was trying to save the world. And then we get this language about how and yet the world is judged. It falls out into believers and not non-believers. Okay, this is how I how I'm reading it, it's more like, it's not that Jesus is sent into the world to judge. Like Jesus is not going around to condemning things or condemning people, 
But the way that people respond to Jesus is sort of a litmus mm-hmm. test mm-hmm. that does have real consequence, yeah. but also it's not like, I don't know. I feel like it sort of takes Jesus out of the driver's seat in that. Like Jesus is not going around pointing his finger at people. Although again, like we just had the temple story. Like, I don't know. Jesus is, is sort of condemning things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although that was not people, but I don't know. Maybe I, I read, I read this first part sort of in relationship to that, that like, though it may seem that Jesus is condemning things, that's not really the point mm-hmm. here. How do you how do you fit all these things together? No, I, I, I think that's right, that God's orientation toward the world through Jesus is an act of reconciliation that is taking place because God loves the world. And that world there is big, right? That's the, you know, at least all humankind, maybe all of creation. Mm-hmm. And there's like, n- nothing is outside of the realm of God's love in that understanding. God is moving towards the world. What seems to be happening then in those later verses is people don't accept the the gift. They don't understand or they don't receive this this love that has been extended to them. And so therefore they have and it, John says they have already been judged. Yeah. What do you make of already? in there. You know, there's a couple of things that are happening in my mind. One is, you know, eternal life on the, you know, the sort of simple reading of eternal life is that you live forever. But I think there's a more profound sense of eternal life, which is that one lives the true life that God intended. And when Jesus arrives, it becomes possible for John that you could go ahead and start living that life now. And so when Jesus arrives and says, look, this is the way, then if you follow that way, then you you begin to live the eternal life here and now. If you don't, then you're going to live some other way, which in John's mind, I think the only other real option is the way of the flesh, right? The way of the empire. And that's not the way God intended. And so you're you are continuing to live a life that does not experience the fullness of God not because God didn't want to offer you the fullness, but because you didn't recognize it or you didn't choose to join it. And then I think it does extend past now into into some eternal future, but there's a sort of an offer on the table. And so it's just a matter of people, ex- just a matter. It is a matter of people excluding themselves because they don't, they don't follow on the, on the way that has been offered. That's so interesting. And I, and it and it's making me think more about verse nineteen. Mm-hmm. The light has come into the world. The people loved darkness rather than light because yeah. their deeds were evil. Yeah, that's really judgy. Well, no, I'm really interested in the causality there because mm. I would have wanted to flip it and say the people's deeds were evil because they loved the darkness more than the light. Ah. Uh. But that's not what it says. So I don't know if I'm overreading that causality or if there's something really going on here about how our actions sort of create our love of light or darkness. 
You know what I mean? I love that question. And, you know, the where my head goes is we often like to create illusions for ourselves that the things that we are doing that are wicked are not, in fact, wicked. And so we tell ourselves stories about why the world is constructed the way it is or why certain neighborhoods are zoned the way they are or about why certain people are in prison and not others and all sorts of things. We have ways of telling ourselves stories that justify our wicked actions. And we don't actually want to know. Like, we don't want to teach critical race theory Mm -hmm. because then we have to face, we have to Mm -hmm. put the reality of the past into the light. And so Mm -hmm. let's just turn out the lights. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's part of what's happening here is people don't want to follow this way because that way involves really grappling with human nature and the horrible things we do and trying to do something different. And it's easier, preferable for many of us. And I put myself in that category on many occasions yeah. Yeah. to just leave the lights out. And so then we separate ourselves from God and we continue to live in the, in the wicked ways that we, that we live. Yeah, that does seem to be like, that does seem to be where this ends up in 20 and 21. Like a willingness to to really look, <laughs> willingness yeah. to really see what's there, which again ties really nicely to that, you know, image that you put in my head of like the importance of looking at the crucifix is in part to acknowledge over and over again every day that we are a hot mess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, Amy. When you're thinking about where this passage intersects with our contemporary world, where does your head go? You know, over and over again during our conversation, my head has gone to the history of race relations in our country and the way mm-hmm. that race relations still play out today and all the things that that have led into it and continue to lead into it. And I don't I, I don't entirely well, I was gonna say I don't know entirely if if that was already on my mind because that's on my mind a lot or or if it came, you know, fully out of the text. But here are a couple places where I where I have really felt that in this text. One of them is this question of our capacity and willingness to accept people's testimony of their own lives mm. and 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 the requirement that we do that if we if we want to have a real life in the world that we we believe people when they're telling us about their own experiences in the world and then the other part of it is this conversation about the the willingness to really hold up a mirror to our our most terrible deeds mm-hmm. and that we can't begin to recover from them or i mean that that we ourselves as the people who committed them we we white folks can't can't begin to move towards anything positive until we're real we're willing to look look it in the face mm-hmm. and we're really not as as a communal you know as a communal entity we don't like to do that yeah. <laughs> we really don't like to do that but i just i don't know more and more i think there's no that that has to be like the precursor to anything else is to really raise up 
some of the most terrible things in the history of race relations before we can start to think about what do we do? Like we want to jump to like, what do we do? What is the thing we can do that's going to fix everything? And I've been thinking more and more about the importance of that previous step of just really, really seeing, seeing it, Mm -hmm. seeing all of it. I love that Amy so much. And my, my head has gone in kind of a similar way Oh, you said it so beautifully. The thing that also is a part of this conversation, holding all of what you just said, is John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And to keep in mind that the orientation of God is toward love. And so God is not seeking judgment. God is not seeking destruction. God is seeking love and reconciliation. And, and yet everything that you're saying is exactly right. That the gazing upon the cross, gazing upon the sins of the past, bringing our own selves into the light, all of those things feel really painful, but they are in the service of a greater love that Mm -hmm. God extends toward the world and that we're invited to extend toward our fellow humans. And doing that is... So getting to that love and reconciliation is a painful process. This is where I think that idea of being born again becomes really salient in a different kind of way. Sometimes that's used sort of tritely, Mm -hmm. but it is a powerful metaphor to say one must go through the process of being birthed over again in a different way. Like this is traumatic. It's, It's painful. It brings you into the world in a different way. It connects you to different people. It connects you to different communities. It makes different life possible. And it means being born not of the flesh, that is not of the waters in which we swim, that the empire, that the world, that human nature gives to us, but being born in a way that is washed clean, whether with the waters of baptism or the waters of the spirit in the exile and being given a new, a new spirit. And you know, sometimes we talk about these things, we Christians do anyway, as though like being born again is something that happens to you like one day, like while, while you're walking down the street. And it's not that at all. It is a uh, a radical, painful self-examination uh, that leads you to a whole new way of living in the world. And all of that is because God loves you, God loves the world, and you're called to love the world too. I just think this passage is so rich and this idea of being birthed again is so important and and we we miss it so often. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's so interesting because I think, you know, the more we, the more we talk about it, these, it's, as you're saying, like you become sort of, you become so familiar with these ideas, with the phrase to be born again, with that line, God so loved the world, with even the whole idea of the cross, the crucifix, that they, they lose some of their power. But one of the things I was thinking as you were talking too, is that if someone is, if a reader is tempted to see the crucifixion of Jesus as an act of the Jews or an act of the Romans or an act or something that they are not a part of, they've really ceded a lot of the power. They have. Like what this, what it was, like this, this comparison to the serpent, like, yep. You cede the power of the crucifix if you don't include yourself in 
these forces of sin. That is exactly right. Yeah. Listen to me. I'm a Jew telling you how you see the power of the cross, Bobby. That's, <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe a little chutzpah dick. But um, I think that that connection to that really kind of strange story in the Hebrew Bible is really elucidating. Yeah. No, I think that's spot on. And, you know, I always, I come back quite often to, if you're reading the, if you're reading the New Testament or the Bible in general, but especially the New Testament in a way that makes you the good person over and against people that you can yeah. now call bad you are not reading it correctly, <laughs> right? Right. This passage is saying right. you are a loved person yes. who does terrible things and you got to stop it, be born again and live in the love, right? Mm-hmm. Embrace it. Yeah. All right, yeah. Amy, I have no idea what we're doing next time. I assume it's probably the end of John 3. 3 it no. is. I will tell you. Oh, no, it is. We are moving on to John chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. That's long. Oh, yeah. That's fast. That's a beautiful story, though. I mean, it's a I don't know, beautiful might not be right, but it's a very fascinating story about Jesus and a, and a Samaritan woman. Yeah. All right, Amy. Good conversation today. Always a pleasure. I will see you next time. See you then. joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm, and thanks for supporting us on Patreon. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll be discussing the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John 4, 1-42. Until then, keep on digging.